I believe that um, we've had a problem. Remember I, my theory that we've had an innovation problem over the last 50 years. One symptom of that problem is that big companies have given up on innovation. But the whole mechanism that they, that they were thinking about is, hey, let's just outsource any new product stuff to startups. And I believe that's an enormous mistake because we have big problems and we need big innovation. Startups can do small things. That's what they're set up to do. You're listening to The Breakdown with me, Chris Clearfield. The Breakdown is a podcast where we connect with business owners and experts to hear their perspectives on this crazy, complex world. I'm your host and fellow learner, and I'm glad you're here. Today, join me for a conversation with entrepreneur and thinker Andy Singleton. Andy's a programmer who's been starting, running, and selling companies for decades. He's also a deep thinker and a student of innovation. I hope you enjoy our wide-ranging discussion from how Amazon innovates to what evolution can teach us about how the airplane was invented and then over decades refined. Andy's available on Twitter at Andy Singleton. And I hope you stick around to the end of the show for some special offers for my listeners. I'm Andy Singleton, and I am a computer programmer. And for many, many years, since before I graduated from college, 30, almost 40 years ago, I have been running small startup software companies, um, including I was employee number two at a company called SNL Securities, which became SNL Financial, which was recently sold for about $2 billion. So, so that's where I learned something. I founded a company called Power Steering Software, which is an enterprise software company that was eventually rolled up and went public. I was early into the internet e-business game. I ran a company called um, Cambridge Interactive. I did not sell that in 1999 like everyone else. I rolled it into <laughs> power steering. So, so, um, so that was perhaps unfortunate. I, I ended up running a SaaS company called Assembla, where I, I really started the company to work on something that's become very, very relevant now, which is managing distributed teams, trying to figure out how to manage software teams the way open source teams were managed, completely distributed. And we uh -huh. built a whole SaaS company and toolkit around that. And I sold that uh, a few years ago to a private equity firm. And that gave me a chance to work on some new projects. The one that I'm most interested in is actually figuring out how innovation works. And um, something that I've been thinking about since uh, in college, I wrote a paper on um, the economic value of the rainforest, genetic information and innovation. And actually it's the only A plus I ever got in college and, um, you know, kind of a very theoretical thought, but I was able sometime later, I was able in the nineties to take some, take a year off and just work on modeling innovation. I bought a house in New Hampshire and I filled it with computers, single board computers. And I wrote a genetic programming, genetic algorithm system that would allow me to test, um, both evolved sort of practical things like trading rules, which is how I, I paid my rent. Um, but also test theories of evolution and how, how evolution and engineering and innovation might be the same. And, and that's something that I'm hoping to spend more time on going forward. Um, unfortunately, uh, life keeps getting in the way. I, um, I'm running development with my expertise on distributed teams for a small company that I'm a board member of and uh, a company called Clearsurance. I also, just over the last week, got started on a project um, that we're calling Pod College, which is 
an attempt to give all of the students, millions of students now that are not being invited back to campus in the fall, a place to go, 10-person um, pots where they can work together on their online cool. curriculum, but with coaches, with essentially teaching assistants, where we equip those people to help you in person. We can also provide things like um, pool testing, you know, high-frequency pool testing, fantastic venues, things like that. So that's that's the that's going to be an experiment in um, online organization management and innovation at uh, warp speed. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah, and that's what I mean. That's the speed is what the world needs right now. Um, you know, the the kind of things things change so fast that being able to uh, you know, you can't take f you can't take three years to build up and and roll out uh, you know an enterprise that changes the way that education is is delivered because the change is happening in two months, right? It's you know it's it's now. Well, well Chris, as a as a, somebody who works with corporations, probably what you can appreciate is that um, most organizations have sort of one speed. They have a cycle. They have like one size startup project and stage gate, and actually. When you look at innovation, it's fractal. It happens at lots of different speeds and scales. The most interesting innovation takes a long time, right? It's an exponential where you're figuring stuff out over a long time and it's actually flat at that end of the exponential. Totally. So, so when people talk about exponential organizations, they, they like to think about the end that, that curves up, but they forget about everything that went at the beginning. Um, and so, uh, you know, I'm interested in both ends, but, but the current, I think, I think what's happened is over the last 40 years, and I have this theory that 40, almost 50 years of sort of stasis, think about that we have had very little innovation in that time. It's been very focused on a narrow set of topics like computers and semiconductors, but think about aviation. The 737 that you get into today that comes off the assembly line was designed in 1968. Totally. And there's a lot of things in our society that are like that. So we've had a long period of stasis. We probably have a lot of stuff that's been percolating in that flat part of the exponential. And maybe some of these crises that we're having, crisis of democracy with social media, crisis of health with COVID, um, maybe that's causing, you know, sort of giving these, that some of that seed some of those seeds and opportunity to burst out at very high speed, right? So it's not like it all happened at high speed, but it, it, had, it had to build up. But, but the part that we see bursts out at high speed. Anyway, I'm experimenting with, okay, let's see if, how, fast, how fast we can go, right? Let's use all these tools. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's so much here. There's so many things I want to ask you about, and I'll, I'll try to be disciplined at, um, at staying a little bit focused myself. Um, I guess one of the questions that what a book I'm reading right now by coincidence is the idea factory, uh, which is all about bell labs and innovation at bell labs that the innovation that bell labs drove from, you know, the 1920s through the 1970s, 1980s, really. And I'm about halfway through the book and it's really, really interesting. And, you know, to your point about the kind of the different parts of the exponential, I mean, one of the things that's in, that's incredible about the the stories coming out of Bell Labs is you know that there's that there's the the invention of the semiconductor basically the you know the invention of the of the transistor, and then there is a ten to fifteen year 
lag where people are figuring out how to commercialize it, um, how to, um, you know, the problems that can actually solve, how to mass produce it. Uh, and then even, you know, there's an even another lag, which is like, okay, now how do we integrate this into our systems that already exist? Um, I mean, one of the stories that's, I think, really interesting in the book is the, the one of the early, uh, I think maybe the first transatlantic um, audio cable uh, was laid post the invention of the transistor, but the transistor was still so new that they didn't, they couldn't trust it. They didn't want to use it. They didn't know if it would work, and they needed the cable to be reliable on, you know, the time scale of decades. And so they used vacuum tubes in it, which I think is really, really pretty, pretty interesting. Um, but I mean, to your point, you know, the education as an example. I mean, that system has been the same for uh, 150 plus years in in the U.S. It's just sort of it's scaled up. But the kind of system of of public and university education, essentially, um... a lot of our organizational infrastructure is the same. A good example is venture capital. They still use the same basic structure that they started with in the late fifties. Tell tell me about that. Well, in the late fifties, they came up with this idea of a limited partnership. Yep. With a ten year lifespan, people would pool money. Somebody would help them find. Uh, portfolio companies, we call them to invest in, they would get the money back. It's a specific kind of a deal. Um, it's been very, very, very successful. There's now $5 trillion worth of these limited partnerships out there, all in kind of the same kind of 10-year lifespan, intended lifespan. Um, but it's interesting that a comp uh, an industry that sort of prides itself on innovation doesn't actually innovate. If anybody that deviates from that structure it usually doesn't do very well. Yeah. Um, and and you know, education is a great example. Healthcare, so many things in healthcare um, are just, we're stuck, right? And we can see these things in our economy because they become extraordinarily expensive. Education and healthcare are two things in the US that are just breaking the bank, right? They're bringing the United States economy to its knees. And um, that's one of the goals of Pied College is try to make some progress on, um, just driving costs back to where they were in 1980, which would be about half in real terms um, by sort of unlinking the very expensive academy from the very expensive campus, you know, and, and trying to find a, more economies in both and kind of creating a third way between um, the sort of the fixed long-term on-campus experience, which is expensive and, and not very portable, right? It's risky because if you move, you lose your degree. Um, and the online, which just doesn't work very well. It's portable, it's inexpensive, but it doesn't work very well. How can we combine those? Um, you know, education. So I've also been thinking a lot about healthcare. I'm working on an article called um, Healthcare Too Cheap to Meter uh, about how healthcare is now is currently the most complicated and expensive thing that we can imagine. Um, and that was also true for energy. So in 1954, 57, um, someone wrote the, the Levi Strauss. Yeah, Levi Strauss, he made a speech. He was the head of the Atomic Energy Commission. He was thinking about fusion. He said, pretty soon we're gonna have electricity too cheap to meter. And that was, I call that a famous fail because it was, what actually happened was exactly the opposite. We had the energy crisis and a whole generation that was obsessed with 
the complexity and the cost and now the environmental damage of energy. Um, but in 2009, I happened to see a guy named Robert Metcalf stood up in front of a room and, and he really got my attention. He said, you know what, pretty soon we're gonna have energy in squanderable abundance. It used to be that networking was expensive. He was the founder of 3Com. Networking used to be expensive. Now, you know, we don't even measure the bits. There's just too many of them, squanderable yeah. abundance. And people thought he was crazy, right? But we're seeing that now, 10 years later, we can see that the price of things like solar energy is actually being driven by technology to down, right? The cost of energy is actually declining pretty rapidly. And it's actually going to bankrupt some of these industries like, you know, the expensive oil drillers in the Gulf and so on. So, so it seems stupid 10 years ago. Now we're seeing it. I feel like the same thing is going to happen to us with healthcare. It's, it, we can't even imagine it being really cheap, but actually if you had, for instance, computers, that knew everything about you and you sort of put together everything we know about healthcare, they would be giving you advice that would be very cheap and possibly a lot more effective. And I think the effectiveness piece is interesting and is worth noting. And then I'm going to zoom out and, and kind of ask about a, another point, but you talk about healthcare and education and what's true in both of those um, kind of swaths of, of industry in the U S is that, it's very expensive and the outcomes aren't great, right? It works, it works very well for a, a slice of people and it doesn't work at all for like the broad, a broad swath of people. And that's, that's pretty interesting from a kind of, from the, the, the perspective of um, what I think of as, as kind of institutional failure as a sort of broad category of things. So why do you think about. that is? Yeah, that's, that's amazing, right? Not the two areas where I, that I called out as being incredibly expensive are also costly in this other way. They don't actually deliver the value for most people. Yeah, it's a good question. I, you know, I let's let's circle back to it because I I think that I, there's another thread which, when you talked about before, when you talked about the pace of 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 big enterprises, um, and I was just thinking about your distributed teams, um, uh, your company to facilitate tools for distributed teams. I'm sure you know the essay, the essay, the the cathedral and the bazaar um, about. Yes, and that's about that's about open source software right. development. Right. Yeah. So it was sort of a. I, I don't remember who wrote it. We'll put it in the show notes. But um, it was about the idea that you know you're moving from this sort of centralized process where you've got to have people kind of the waterfall driven, the waterfall development process where you have these, you know, big long swaths of work to this open source process where, where people are distributed. And I'm not sure how you got interested in distributed teams. I'm, I'm curious about that. But, but one of the things that strikes me is all of these things you're talking about are things where the underlying thing that you're doing is actually trying to change a, 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 a very well established institutional practice. Yeah, so I'm beating my head against some famous walls, right? Uh, right. You know, I'm getting older. I'm. I have to think bigger if I'm going to have an impact. And uh, you know, now I'm thinking organizationally. And even beyond what most people do at this stage in their careers, which is sort of think, well, how could I run a company better, for example? Well, maybe a company isn't the right way to think about it. There's lots of other ways to think about it. The cathedral and the bar said, well, Bazaar said, what if we have you know, instead of having the company engineering, we'll just have a community engineering. Community is right. yet another way to do it. That's the bazaar. And we have fantastic success in some areas with communities, things like Linux and Bitcoin. 
And there's a third way that I've actually spent years studying, which I call matrix of services. It's how Amazon works. Amazon is a yep. very unique beast um, where you, you have a centralized metric of everybody has to make money with their products, but you have a very decentralized set of what they call services, software components that you can assemble or even infrastructure components like warehouses and drones and vans, right? That you can assemble in order to deliver your product. And if you have, if you can optimize that extremely complex system, you actually get the best of both worlds and a trillion dollar market cap. Yeah. So I, I'm curious. So I want to, let's, let's play with that a little bit. Cause I think that that's an interesting, so um, that's an interesting thing to have studied and so a lot of people who are have a software background will know the kind of the idea of this sort of service oriented architecture where you sort of you kind of define an endpoint and you let people plug into that endpoint but even you yourself as the developer you sort of enforce the discipline of you have to use that endpoint too so you're not kind of you're not sort of doing anything behind the scenes and as a result your your system becomes kind of very well defined and the boundaries become become very well distributed, which means that people can sort of depend on what you're going to deliver to them. And it, it makes it, if, if you document it well, and if you actually use it, then it makes the system kind of like more robust and can change faster instead of having to change the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, I would actually, so this is my area. <laughs> I'm actually yeah, gonna please. challenge you on why service architecture works. So the idea behind service architecture, I'll just review for the audience, is that you build your complicated software, like for instance, Google, out of yep. components that you can reuse. And uh, so a service might be login. I wanna log somebody in, no matter what Google product, I'm gonna go to the same login. And the same thing is true for Amazon. And um, there might be a database, right? No matter what I wanna save, I save it in the same spot. And if you're Amazon or Google, you have about 5,000 different teams that maintain 5,000 different services. Now, what you said is, well, the important thing is modularity, that each service is well-defined so it can be reused, modularity reuse. Yeah, that's, that's sort of what makes this work. But actually, that's not the... Um, that's What's not the killer the, app. Yeah, that's not the the sort of economy planet changing thing about it because we've always had modularity, right? There was this book called The Mythical Man Month, which used to be required reading for everybody. In the last ten years, nobody reads it for a reason that I'm going to explain. Um, but basically, it explained how if you are making big, complicated pieces of software, you're it it gets harder and harder and harder to actually test and release that software, and and over a certain size, you know, there's lots of famous fails in like the phone company and the government, big banks, right? Over a certain size, these software systems are likely just never to be released. They just don't work. And totally. so that was true for 50 years. This, the guy that was writing about uh, the OS360 project, which happened in 1964. And for approximately 50 years after that, um, this was kind of an iron law that the bigger and more complicated the project, the harder it would be to release. We don't hear about that anymore because something changed, but boom. So about 10 years ago, we saw companies like Google break through the complexity barrier to the point where they have millions of what are called function points in the same software. And, the, and, and that problem went away all of a sudden. In, in, the, in this book, The Mythical Man Month, which as I said, you know, generations were raised on, um, the famous phrase is there is no silver bullet. 
it's always going to be hard to release these complex systems. And I recently wrote an article called We Found the Silver Bullet, because we did find the silver bullet. It's not modularity. The, the guy that wrote the Mythical Man Month, Brooks, said it would be modular. He said, well, what we have to do is hierarchically organize our systems so that each team can make its module. And then they won't have to worry about the other modules. Their job will be simpler. Um, and that didn't work. Obviously didn't work because for 50 years, people tried following that advice. What did work is something called continuous integration. So even if you have no organization at all, like I don't know if you've seen something called the Netflix Death Star, which is a graph of how all the software connects at Netflix. No organization at all. It's not hierarchical or modular at all, but each service is modular. And, and what they do is every day or you know, continuously, multiple times an hour, they run tests that check to see whether your service, your login still works with all the other products. And at Google, they actually have 7,000 people that just run a second version of Google to test Google. And if you do that, then you just, you get away from this problem that when you put the parts together, they don't work. And then you have to go, have a human go back and figure out who depends on what. It's a dependency problem. Who depends right. on what and get them to fix it? Because in any given day, the software is going to test your software and say, you know what? Your component no longer works with component Z, which you probably have never heard of. And, and this system can be unimaginably complex. You don't need a human to figure out how component A and component Z work together. The, the, the testing scripts figure that out for you. So it's, it's not scaled to the human management system. It's scaled to how big can a computer network be. It's, it's really basically artificial intelligence. And if you run that system, then you don't get these dependency problems. Um, essentially, a computer is running your you know, dependency management. And uh, you, you found the silver bullet. Another way to, to, to sort of phrase it, I think, and I think about this a lot, um, both with software teams, but also with with people who run physical infrastructure, oil and gas, um, you know, et cetera, is you want the person that's closest to the problem to be the one making as many decisions about it as possible. And so I think you're absolutely right about, continue, you know, of course, because this is your your field, that, that's a great way to put it, that, that that's really the silver bullet, the continuous integration, continuous deployment. Um, because what it does is anytime there's a problem, it, it lets the person that caused the problem know essentially immediately so they can fix it right away, right? So you can't get, you, you can't push problems onto other people. If you break something, the testing catches it and pushes it back to you and says, you broke this thing, now you need to fix it. Is that, is that kind of a way to put it in the sort of human terms? Yes. And there's a mathematical way to think about it in graph theory, if I don't Blow, explode your brain, right? But if you think about, well, if login doesn't work, none of the other components work. Right. You know, or all the other components that require login, and then all of the other components that depend on those components don't work. Pretty soon you could bring a, you know, you could bring a 50,000 person organization to a halt waiting for one person to fix login. And that's essentially exactly what happens in complex project management is those dependencies build up. If you have this cycle, you know, and there's lots of other tricks in service architecture. For instance, you, you run the old version that's still compatible with the new version and, you know, you don't have to put the new version until it works. There's lots of tricks for making sure that that just never happens, right. that, that the system, fa that the, that component fails, or if it does fail, somebody gets an alert in the middle of the night and they have to get up and fix it. Right. 
And, and but again, that the ownership ends up being very, very clear. The ownership, and it's very interesting because what you end up with is imagine in the old version of systems management, you have you make the software and then you hand it off to an ops team. Right. And they, yes. they monitor it, right? And if it breaks, they figure out how to fix that breakage. But if you have 5,000 components and component 4,003 breaks, the ops team has no idea what component 4,003 does. So actually the monitoring and the debugging go back to the dev team and it's just a much shorter loop, as you pointed out. I, I think there's relevance, even if you're not in tech, there's relevance for thinking about this. A, because one thing is I believe essentially every business person is in tech, even if they don't know it these days. Um, but two, I think that just that from a management philosophy perspective, I think it's very, very powerful to, to think in these terms. And I think there's, there's a lot here, but you know, one of the things that has happened is that people have passed through the uncanny valley of this, right? And so, so what, I, what do I mean by that? I mean that when this was, you know, it used to be, right, you'd have a big project, you'd release quarterly, or you'd release every six months or every year or whatever. And then what happened was people couldn't take, people couldn't take a project and release, you know, um, every month. But what they could do is they could take a project and they could release every day. And the difference between releasing every month and releasing every day is that if you're pushing code every day or you're pushing code, you know, multiple times a day, as some of the early players in this space did, like Flickr, the photo sharing site, John Allspaw was there and he was like one of the people who was sort of pushing this. The difference between releasing every day and releasing every month is that if you release every day, you've got to automate things. You've got to build very clear pathways for for sort of, the, just like we're talking about, the responsibility. And you have to have checks in place so that, you know, what, one of the things I think about, again, in software, but also in physical systems is how do you make it easy for people to do the right thing and hard for people to do the wrong thing? And what continuous integration, continuous testing, continuous deployment does is it makes it really hard for people to do the wrong thing and much easier for people to do the right thing. And I think that the difference, if you if you were to, you know, cut your release time in half, you, you would never cross through the valley. But as soon as you empower people to release every day, then you get this kind of innovation at, at a crazy scale, which I take it is how you got kind of interested in this part of the question in, in the first place, thinking about how it ties to innovation. Is that right? Yes, exactly. Because I believe that, um, we've had a problem, remember I, my theory that we've had an innovation problem over the last 50 years. One symptom of that problem is that big companies have given up on innovation. They've found that it's actually hard to, to produce new products. They're very, in fact, it's very interesting to see what happened with COVID. Big companies were extremely fast and effective at redoing their supply chains and redoing their work. They sent everybody home, no problem. They were incredibly good at getting the work done that they already knew they needed to do. Yeah, um, both with us from a supply chain point of view and from a workforce management point of view, um, actually much better than smaller companies. And so big companies are obviously really good at sort of producing the product that they produce. But but almost none of them went and produced anything new that was suitable for the new environment. They've sort of given up on that and they've outsourced that to startups. And since startups yeah. are small and, and don't really 
you know, most of them don't do go very far, don't move the needle. They started having these big incubators and, you know, trying to do it at, you know, larger scale portfolios. But the whole mechanism that they, that they were thinking about is, hey, let's just outsource any new product stuff to startups. And I believe that's an enormous mistake because we have big problems and we need big innovations. Startups yeah. can do small things. That's what they're set up to do. Bell Labs is set up to invent a transistor, turn that into a radar system that has 100,000 transistors, turn that into a globe-spanning fiber optic network. So Intel can make a chip with 10 billion transistors on it. Um, you know, Lockheed Martin can send a man to the moon. So the, um, you need big companies <laughs> to do big things. And, and so we had actually had a big gap, right? We, had, we didn't have those big things for a while. And um, what's interesting is we kind of got that back with these, these new matrix of, matrix of services, I call them, Maxos organizations like Amazon and Google. They're actually pretty good at producing new stuff. Uh, you have a high failure rate like any innovators, but they do it at much bigger scale. And so, you know, we, we kind of made the transition. So I'm really interested. That's my primary motivation for studying big companies that innovate to prove that it's possible so that we can get back those big innovations. My second is sort of more theoretical, which is to note that we've passed to a very dangerous phase in our society where the old limits on how big a company can grow have fallen down. And um, you know, Amazon is the first of a new breed of you know, kind of Skynet companies that, that isn't bounded in how big and complicated it can become. Huh. Anyway, so, so those are two different things, but I think, Explaining to big companies, yes, you can be innovative. You can manage a lot of new product development. That's a pretty big step, right? That we're trying to, you know, trying to get back that vigor. Well, and I'll, I'll, I'll add my two cents to that, which is something that I've been kind of interesting, I found really interesting and, and sometimes been a little bit flabbergasted by, which is, um, so, you know, Bell Labs, uh, Google, um, I, Amazon, also, although I want to, I'm going to qualify that. So I'll, I'll leave them out of this. Um, uh, you know, if we just think about Bell Labs and Google for a minute, I mean, both of those companies have a, a Facebook too, right? They have um, just a machine that they have running in the corner that just spits out dollars, right? They just spits out cash. Um, for, for Bell Labs, it was AT&T having the natural monopoly on, on the phone system. For Google, it's Google's, you know, unbelievable, unbelievably um, uh, profitable ad engine. For Facebook, same thing. Um, and what I think is interesting about that is, I think it, it, you know, one of the things that is true about not just innovation, but about about kind of engineering and invent. I mean, invention, which is the sort of pre-innovation stage in many ways, is that you need time and resources and you have to have a really high tolerance for failure and one of the most interesting thing and this this isn't a podcast about the idea factory but one of the most interesting things about the book that i find is how how long the time scales of innovation are that that are happening or how long the time scales are you know we're talking i mean people going away and thinking about a problem for months at a time with no nothing that resembles forward progress and then you know you've got this it's it's the the thomas kuhn's structure of scientific revolutions you've got these kind of jump discontinuities and then you've got the long tail of sort of having to 
then commercialize and manufacture whatever technology was just shown to be theoretically plausible. And I think that that's something that big companies, and this, this kind of goes back to this thing that I, I find myself perplexed by, which is the, the risk aversion at big companies. Um, so I've talked with big companies that, that, you know, for example, like you're describing, um, we'll do something like run a hackathon, you know, or, or like get, get a, um, a group to approach some problem in an innovative way. And in a short amount of time, they will get a kind of working prototype for, you know, oh, here's how we could run this analysis differently. Here's how we could, um, uh, you know, here's a product that would help us quantify this. Um, yeah, I'm thinking about an insurance company that, that I was recently working with. Here, here's a product that will help us, you know, deliver kind of a, a um, platform to customers that will help them understand the quantification of a certain kind of risk, for example. Um, and so you've got this proof of concept and then it's like, okay, now you guys get $300,000 to explore this. And this is a company that has, you know, literally billions of dollars in cash sitting on their balance sheet. And so there's this really just, I think, interesting tension about um, underinvestment in, in promising ideas that exist at a lot of different companies that have a tremendous number of resources where- Yeah, and, and it's, it's self-defeating, right? So why do people pay ridiculous amounts for Tesla stock? Because they want to invest in innovation, right? And none of the other car companies will do it. You know, they're, yeah. it's actually self-defeating. They're not meeting the demand, even among investors, people who want to shovel money into their into the back of their truck. They're not even, they're like closing the doors of the truck and not taking it. Tesla's the only truck that's open that will take that money. So. So why is that? And I think it, it comes down to a bad understanding of portfolio theory and power law returns. So power law returns is this idea that um, all, you're going to make all of your money because just the way the statistics of how big the payoffs are, you're going to make all your money on the biggest wins. And there's not going to be very many of those. So for instance, that, from that $300,000 stage, about one in 100 will become a unicorn. Yeah, which is a billion dollar business that actually moves the needle at a big company. Well, it's that's just hard to get your mind around. What was the what was the number? One in one in a what? It's almost exactly one in a hundred. Okay. Interesting. Right? Which makes it a great investment if you think about it. Right. You know, totally. You make a hundred million dollar investments, you you make a hundred one million dollar investments, you get back a billion dollars. It's a machine that's made, you know, Paul Graham and the Y Combinator guys, right. billionaires across the board. And, and those guys were friends of mine when they were nowhere. So <laughs> I've seen how this can work. And um, so, but, you know, they just, their, their whole training in project management is, you know, half of the projects succeed and, and I make 20%, right? And, and to imagine a situation where 99 projects fail and one project makes makes you a thousand x and you know now you have a hundred x on the whole thing it's it's crazy and yet if you don't fund a hundred projects at that three hundred thousand dollar level you're not going to get it, even one move the needle yeah and I, I think so i i agree it's an understanding of portfolio theory but that's a very intellectual view of it and and what i would add is um people are afraid there is a qualitative difference between being a VC or being, you know, somebody who, who works with early stage startups where not, you're not just quantitatively think, taking a, a, a portfolio perspective, you are also like 
attitudinally taking a portfolio perspective where like every failure is just part of the course of doing business. Whereas if you are at um, a big company, you know, you have advanced in your career by being successful at doing things. And so have most of the people that are around you. And so the, the term that I go back to that um, is researched by Amy Edmondson is psychological safety. It's just like, if you're if you are not operating in an environment where people really explicitly value experimentation and failure, even if you had people that that understood the portfolio theory, they're not going to be able to kind of enact that because of the kind of um, organizational habits that are around them. If that makes sense. Yeah, I don't agree that it's organizational habits. I think the incentives are very real, right? If you have a ninety nine percent chance of failure, that's real. That's not just psychological. And in fact, being an entrepreneur is a bad bet because of that. Um, and it's a bad bet whether you're inside or outside an organization. And, and you know, I see this every day, right? That people who have good jobs at, at big companies are, would be insane to go and join a startup. It's just, you know, the odds are too low compared with what they get with the big company. There is a guy that studied this, Safi Bakal. He wrote a book called Loon Shots. I know Safi, yeah. Yeah, where he said, he, he basically pointed out, okay, this is all about incentives. And if you work at a successful big company, your incentive is always to make that company more successful. It's just a much better bet than anyone than anything else. He called it soldiers, right? And you know, but if somehow you're cast out and you're just a weirdo, you become an artist, <laughs> and and you have to win, right? On your on your the strength of your new idea, and and you're never going to get a soldier whose incentive structure is rationally right it's not psychology in my opinion it's incentives um dedicated towards advancing in that big organization you're not going to get that person to take the risks that an artist has to take to do something new well when i say just to be clear when i say organizational habits i really mean um i, I think in well incentives is a word that i never really know what that means i never know if that means cash or um it means what it means what you it means what a rational person which is most people actually when they think about their jobs think they should do in that organizational setting that i actually think people are quite smart right it, they're not driven by like culture and these abstract things the culture comes from a set of incentives and people figure out what's going to work pretty quickly which is why for instance something like continuous integration works once you see it work you do it right it doesn't matter how weird it seems compared to your your previous project management because you can see that it works totally i yes i agree with that i think though that when i say culture i don't mean I don't mean a sort of like squishy value statement. I mean how people actually respond to the work as it's done day to day. I mean, here, here, here's an example, right? You could be somebody who is, you know, working on um, uh, a piece of software. You could be somebody who's, you know, a, a data analyst. You could be a lawyer. You could be somebody who's on an oil rig. And there is a, you know, quote unquote, a way you do things, right? You figure out a different way. Some cultures will just shut that down. You know, like, hey, that's not how we do things. Like, you got to follow your procedures, even if your way is objectively better, even if it's an objectively better incremental improvement. Um, I think that there are some cultures that will absorb that and distribute that throughout the organization pretty quickly. 
um, as a as a practice. And so I, I think we're saying actually the same thing. I think we just the incentives can be how somebody responds to an idea, um, how somebody responds to curiosity. Like, you know, if you if you are working on something and you say, hey, I wonder if we use, you know, this containerization platform instead of this one, if that would get us anything better. I mean, there are, there are organizations that are like, you know, nope, we've, we've got an enterprise contract with XYZ or whatever, like this is what we use. And I like in my mind, those, those phrases have capital letters in them at the beginning of every word. You know, it's like, this is what we use versus like other organizations where the incentive and, and the culture is like, huh, that's interesting. I wonder what would happen if we did X. Um, huh. I wonder how, you know, I wonder how this practice would differ from, from this one or, or kind of whatever, whatever it is. Um, and I think, you know, Amazon, cause I'm in Seattle, I know lots of folks at Amazon and, and their culture is interesting because they really have a mix. I mean, some groups are very autonomous and are really encouraged to try things. Um, and others have managers who um, I think actually really discourage innovation and optimization outside of a very narrow band of what's kind of measurable right, right in front of them. And I think that the advantage that Amazon have is, has is that they, are, they have so many different groups that you can accept some kind of heterogeneity in their practices. They have a much more heterogeneous culture than lots of other companies I've seen from the inside. And that's a good hint. That's a good hint, right? That um, I, I would say that if there's comp if if there are organizations that are very rigid and and they don't want to hear new ideas, there's probably a reason for that. You know, like, I just yeah. give people the benefit of the doubt that that they're smarter. They're smarter about their own incentives and and the sort of the risk and the hassle that they run by doing something new then maybe I would notice coming in from the outside. You know, I don't, I don't know what all of their constraints are. Totally. And I would also point out that you mentioned something about Bell Labs that, that's related to this, which is you said, well, there can be months with no forward progress. And that actually, um, that's not from Thomas Kuhn. That's, uh, that's actually from Stephen Jay Gould and his idea of punctuated equilibrium. Right. Any, any kind of innovation is that, the um, and I found this to be very, very strong in my models of just software that was evolved from nothing, right? No culture, no humans, no anything. Um, Interesting. Very, yeah. very strong regression to the mean that once you get like an organ, an organism that survives, it has all of these defense mechanisms, which in our own cells we call DNA repair. Right. Um, it has all these DNA repair mechanisms to keep it on an even keel. And it's actually very hard to, to get a mutation that sort of busts out of that. Yep. But when you do get a mutation that busts out of that, it's pretty significant. It, it's very punctuated. It suddenly takes over everything. And so now we now know that all evolution works that way. It's actually very slow until it's very fast. Right. And, and that's true in organizations as well. And, um, but there's reasons for that DNA repair. The Thomas Kuhn, just to follow up on that, is, is the idea that science advances one funeral at a time. It's the thing that you talked about before, that it takes 15 or 20 years for people to sort of grow up with something new, like lasers invented in 57. It wasn't until about 1977 that they thought, hey, we could stick these in a CD player, right? So there's, that cycle is, is very human. Anyway, there you go. Yeah, and I think, you know, to, to kind of... Um 
circle back a little bit, I think one of the books that that I find um, just profound is um, by uh, Douglas Knopf. It's called Institutions, Institutional Change and Economic Performance. And it is sort of about the the kind of self-healing power of institutions to, um, you know, maintain their course and to... Um, to redefine their objective as their own protection and their own survival. And there are lots of examples of this when you look out in, in the world, particularly in the public sector, where I think thing, you know, the, 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 the forces of change are even weaker than they are in, in where you have, you're having kind of direct competition. Um, although I, I certainly think that lots of big companies are insulated by you know, virtues of market structure and their position and patents. Too many of them right now power. in the U.S. That that's a leading economic theory is that we've we've sort of coddled our oligopolies. Yeah, no, I and I I I mean, without having thought carefully about it, um, without seeing data, like that's sort of my intuition also that like lots of companies, if they were to spring up de novo today in a sort of field of other comp like of of competitors, I think you would see different outcomes in terms of the the strength of the cultures that that arose but anyway back to back to Noth, you know we wrote about two things in meltdown that i think are are um interest are are kind of interesting and um relevant to this and and one of them is uh washington state department of corrections had a bug in their prisoner management database basically that was miscalculating sentencing times and um, it took them two years, or actually, sorry, it took them more than that, two plus years, two years after the ticket was created for them to get around to fixing it, which to me is just the kind of, you know, the institution sort of prioritizing its daily operations over being kind of, uh, you know, curious and, and sort of trying to actually understand what's going on. But the other one is the Flint, Michigan, um, water crisis, which has a lot of things overlaid on it. It has, you know, race and systemic racism. It has economic um, kind of, you know, classism. Um, but it's also got at the heart of it, this, this institution in the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality that really somehow flipped a switch in their head collectively from, you know, def like helping people stay healthy to defending the choice set that other public sector institutions has made have had made around whether or not to treat water and you know whether or not to apply corrosion treatment in the new flint water system and and all of these things that when you look at it from the outside don't make any sense but when you look at it from the perspective of trying to kind of preserve the institution all of a sudden make a lot more sense I don't know what to say to that because that now you're into sort of the, you know, you're into sort of when do we burn it down, right? Every institution hey, strongly defends its turf and, you know, but every institution also essentially goes obsolete. And so, so I mean, actually, that's kind of where I, what I wanted to ask you and, and, you know, do you think that, that you, you talked about stagnation, we've had a lot of stagnation in terms of practices institutions as a society for you know on the order of of 50 years 100 years um do you think we are approaching a point of kind of punctuated equilibrium 
in, in the way that we will see accelerated change? I don't know, but I'm leaning in that direction. So I've long been an advocate of the position that innovation technology is actually advancing more slowly. And that's not necessarily bad, right? You know, it's an art to balance stability, you know, and, and conservative right. values with innovation and change when you need it. And um, there, we may eventually reach a point, for instance, with the environment where we can't go back, right? We can't conserve the environment we have. We have to go forward into the Anthropocene, as they say, and actually just manage the planet. So, you know, sometimes circumstances force your hand, but it's an art to balance between um, change, which, you know, feels bad and sort of progress, <laughs> yep. which is the good, good part of change. Um, but I've long said that for the last 50 years, if you look at almost any measure except, you know, semiconductors, innovation has been suppressed. It's been much slower than it was in the 100 years before 1970. And um, it's only in the last few months since I'm, I've seen what's happened with COVID and uh, that I've started to think, well, maybe we're going to get another one of these surges, right? That, uh, my whole theory of innovation is actually around supply and demand. There's a supply of innovation that we don't even know where it comes from. It's sort of like mining gold. Sometimes you have a thick vein. Sometimes you have a thin vein. The supply of innovation goes up and down. We don't know why um, evolution some takes, sometimes takes off on the huge punctuated jags like it did with the, with the Industrial Revolution. But it may be, but over time, that the forces of you know, the flat part of the exponential do build up. And, and I am now starting to think that they're bursting out, that we're going to get another period of of rapid change across all of our institutions, not just in computers and semiconductors. Right. That, you know, we'll start to layer on how hacking organizations. Well, how do you run communities and governments and, you know, on top of sort of the standard corporate structure. And, you know, that's one, you know, kind of very, very productive vein of innovation. And then, you know, there's obviously the whole area of biotechnology, artificial intelligence. We have no idea where that's going to go, except that it could be scary. So, We've actually opened up a lot of doors that when the COVID crisis hit, it was interesting to see um, how many startups stepped up and said, you know, I could help with this just out of the biotech zone. Now, in, in the end, it's going to be the big pharma companies that get us out of this. <laughs> so, you know, that's an argument for big companies if you actually look at what happened. But it was amazing how many there were of these yeah. smaller startups and, and that, that's, that got me thinking. It was also um, interesting to see punctuation in action in healthcare where they had been trying to do these telehealth visits, just you can call your doctor, right? Makes sense. They've been trying to do that for 10 years. You know, there were whole departments dedicated to trying to make this go and it didn't never went anywhere. And then it, literally in the space of about 10 days, seven to 10 days, it all flipped over. Yeah. So, you know, when you see that, you start to think that, that it could happen again, right? It could, might happen, for instance, with college. College is super expensive. We're trying this pod college concept, which is unlinking you from that, you know, four-year institution. Um, so, yeah, what do you think? You, do you think that, do you agree that it's been kind of subdued compared to the Industrial Revolution? And then do you, you know, maybe think that we could get on a different spurt? 
Yeah, I think I think the airplane and, and the airplane and the automobile are, are really good examples of. of yeah, this. we drive autos that were a hundred, literally a hundred years old. You could go and look at a hundred year old car, and you would know what all the parts do. Right. Yeah, and so you know the other the other um, the the kind of uh, the other way to think about the the balance is um, what some scholars call the you know the the um, exploration exploitation kind of balance, right? And so. You look at the Wright brothers, who um, or, or Bell Labs, right? Who I mean, so much of what they did was was explore, right? I mean, the Wright brothers just had this tremendous faith that they would solve this problem, and they systematically explored the problem space, and they ultimately made an airplane. Now, it took you know decades before that airplane was functional in any way that we think about what an airplane does now. And then it took another, you know, 50 years before the airplane was essentially perfected, right? I mean, you know, the, the 737, as you said, like, it's perfect. You're right, right? You you're can- right. The Wright brothers was what, they, they, they started working around the turn of the century. They flew in 1904. You know, they had a prototype that could, you know, the Red Baron could play with in 1914. Yep. They had passenger planes essentially in 1934, which is almost exactly your 20-year lag. They had, you know, large-scale commercial production in 1954, which is yep. the 50-year lag. And then by 1970, all of that S-curve was used up. We, we ended up with the planes we have now, nothing in the last 50 years. Yeah, and then, and then what I think is interesting, too, is then you see the organizational coping follow that, right? So then you've got, you know... 1970s was a low point in aviation safety because you had you had a lot more flying um but the organizational and the kind of interpersonal tools to deal with it weren't there yet and so then you've got this sort of second wave of things that were essentially not at all airplane design features but were human factors features where we got a lot better at learning from the system we got a lot better at learning from crashes we got a lot better at teaching flight crews how to interact and how to ask for input. We, we started listening to the things that were going wrong in the system. Um, and it's really, really powerful. And so, and, and then actually you see, you know, I mean, if we, we, we can just keep playing with it. Um, then you see the 737 MAX, which is kind of, you know, the limit of our ability to refine what's essentially a, a you know, a, a decade, a 50 year old design. Um, uh, so you looked at this point of these 50 years that I'm calling stasis. You looked at it as, as a period where a lot of innovation was being made in safety and refinement. And then maybe we hit the end of that with the 737 MAX. Yeah, and I, I think actually you could, you could see that too with, um, you can see that too in software, right? Like the, I mean, kind of to your point about the, the mythical man month, like the, the first set of innovations was the technological innovations. And then we had the organizational practice innovations that that followed it and so um those are a, but but those are a different a different scale of things because they can be contained in the same inside the same institutions and i think one of the really interesting questions now is um you know what do we see next right i think we are on the verge of of so many potentially game-changing technologies that will um you know just change i mean you know, the 737 MAX is a nice example of trying to integrate something new into essentially a legacy system. And, and we see how hard that is, 
we see how you're referring to the idea that they put essentially bigger engines on the exact same plane, almost the same plane they designed in 1968 for some little puny engine. And that's, yeah. that's why it's unstable. They put bigger engines in it, which causes the instability. They then tried to correct that with, uh, with, with kind of software, um, which created, I mean, it, which isn't impossible to do, but the way they did it, I think, didn't respect the complexity of the system that they were creating. And I think that's one of the things that, that I see over and over that legacy systems, you know, systems where you started adding pieces on, and I'm not the one to come up with this insight, but those get more and more, those get more and more fragile, right? I mean, I think there's, there is a reason that um, Google owns search and not IBM. It, you know, it, it, even if the insight could have been there, I think the, the kind of, the, the value of a clean sheet design is a lot riskier, but if it pays off, you are, um, you're sort of much less encumbered by historical compromises that, that you don't. So you do have, have a theory for why Boeing, in, you know, built the 737 Max instead of just saying to their engineers, hey, go crazy, you know, we're going to design a completely new plane. And, you know, I'm sure they have um, a thousand ideas about how to, you know, what a modern version would look like that are that the 737 Max actually didn't do right because it, it is a legacy design. Yeah, I think it. I think it was pretty clearly um, the fact that I mean, by so Airbus basically did the same thing as as Boeing. First, they had their A320 Neo. They put bigger engines on. By pure coincidence, the Airbus just sits higher, so they could put bigger engines on and basically not redesign the form factor of the airplane at all. There's really just luck. Like it's just, there's just total coincidence. I don't, I don't, I mean, I should take that back. I'm not hundred percent confident of that, but I suspect that when Airbus was designing the A320, you know, again, 30 years ago or whatever it was, they didn't say, let's make this higher so we can accommodate, you know, bigger engines in a couple of decades. I think the plane was just higher. And no, so I believe in the luck theory of everything. Yeah, totally. I, gotcha. I believe in the luck theory of everything. I guess, I guess my question, I'm turning this back to you. Do you think that we're going to be more likely to see these ground up designs similar to what we saw with Tesla, where the Tesla kind of uses the Google Amazon theory of if I'm going to run continuous integration, right? I'm not going to have model years. I'm going to be constantly changing my components. I have to vertically integrate. I have to make yes. every component so I can run that continuous improvement process on every component and not wait two years for my supplier to deliver me the next version of the wheel or the battery, right? So, so they actually did what Boeing didn't do. They, you know, they just went with a completely new concept, which was without any of the old parts or many of the old parts, right? Vertically integrated, continuous improvement. We've never, you know, we're a long way from airplane companies being comfortable with that, but that would be an example. And and I think to me that goes that speak get goes back to the culture point, um, which is like, well, why couldn't why couldn't GM do this? Which if you look at them from a structural marketplace perspective, they should be able to do this, right? Quote unquote should. But like then you have to remember that GM is also the company that you know paid out billions of dollars because they were putting faulty ignition switches in cars and they had some guy that knew about it but wasn't comfortable. It took them years, right? Instead of just going and fixing the thing. Yeah, and right. to me, that's the innovation of Tesla. Like, I'm not a huge Tesla fanboy, but people for years have been saying, look, these Teslas, these new models are terrible. They should do a year of beta testing like the old, you know, like the more experienced car companies do. Then we would get a better car in our first model year. Absolutely true. But you know what? That's the genius, right? You're releasing a car that doesn't work. And, you know, then a month later, it does work. 
<laughs> right. That's a lot different than a year. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, so to kind of zoom out back to the societal level and answer the question that that I asked you, like I also don't know, um, but I also suspect that we are about to see lots of what I think of as um, widespread distribution of things that used to be centrally controlled. So um, I think that's you know technology. I think that's uh, uh, you know, cryptography is an example of that. I think that, you know, we now have people, I mean, right, look at, we now have companies that are delivering end-to-end -end encryption to consumers all the time, and consumers don't even know about it. And that is very different from even 15, 20 years ago when if I wanted to send you a secure message, you know, God, we'd have to like have an email client, I'd have to like paste my PGP key in there, you know, it would just be be kind of ridiculously painful. You know, so we've we've got that. We've got 3D printing, which I think is has so far under delivered, but I think eventually will, um, like in a way, be delivering things to consumers in a very very different way. And I think you've got the equivalent of that in biology, in in synthetic biology. Um, plus, um, and I, I, I'm not the I'm reading a book called um, another book called Stealing Fire right now, which is all about um, psychedelics as a cultural mediator of creativity or ecstatic technologies as they as they talk about it more broadly um i think that's really interesting i think we're seeing a very like a, a resurgence in 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 that and i think something like that could very well um change the collective consciousness change what we value um and i guess the final one is i'll say democracy right i mean in 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 the u.s which i think for me is my dominant worldview because I live here and because I was raised here. Like we've got a system of democracy that is horrible and that is kind of collapsing under its own weight and does not meet the needs of its people and doesn't even have any kind of rational selection. And by that, I mean, I think if you ask people what they would like um, versus the choices that like the kind of choices they would like to make versus the kind of choices they actually get to make, I think there's a huge gap between between those things, regardless of where you sit on the political spectrum. Um, yeah, well, I mean, and I agree with the underlying thought there, though, which is government is very important. Government does things like funding vaccines, which would never be profitable. The externalities are so big that would never be profitable for private enterprise. So we have to rescue our government. Totally agree. I totally agree. And I think that is one of the major failures of government right now, which is government has stopped funding a lot of externalities that they should fund, right? So, you know, look at, I mean, this is the, this is kind of the, this defund the police movement. Um, we have so many institutions that have become the safety net for everything, right? We've got, we've got cops, we've got teachers, and we've got doctors. And you look at the kind of thing, the kind of challenges and problems that they manage, they are, they are sort of, our, our only line of defense against so many external, externalities like mental health, like, I mean, you know, schools in terms of nutrition and school lunches. It's like we have, um, government has stopped solving for many of the most important externalities out there. And I think as a result, we see these kind of, these systems that just have, uh, are horribly inefficient and have a huge amount of rent seeking and are just not, cost effective. I mean, it's, it's just, there are so many ways in which, um, 
providing mental health services effectively is so much cheaper than creating a, you know, a school to prison pipeline. And yet we don't do that. So I think government has, has part of why government is failing in the U S or part of why we're, we're kind of edging to a failed state is because we haven't, we don't own the, the government doesn't own the externalities in a way that I think they need to, and they should to help with the big problems. Well, it's again, getting back to kind of my, it's a macro version of my complaint that big companies have given up on innovation. You know, government yeah. in the U.S. has given up on a lot of things that government should manage, right? Just stepping forward and saying, you know, management is, a, is, a, is an art that we can practice not only in corporations, but also in government and communities and, and really understanding how to make it work, you know, yeah. having that level of optimism. <laughs> Somehow we lost that. Um, both for innovation, you know, in big companies and for government, you know, management of some of these big problems that we know in other countries, government does manage. Yeah, totally. And, and they manage it in a way that, that just, I was talking with somebody else about this today that, you know, despite the, the kind of, um, the ideas or other, or the fears that might, might be out there that are in fact, not catastrophic to their, to their existence in, in the world. Then you could argue that, well, you know, maybe we, maybe we're not seeing this on the right time scale and maybe eventually, you know, the kind of, kind of model of government non-intervention in the U S will, will win out to a state that's, you know, more, more owning these externalities. But I, I just, I don't think that's the case personally. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, I, I don't know. I think that debate is, pretty close to being settled because now we have a um, we have a government that's experimenting with this idea that if we have a terrible plague, we should do nothing at the national level, right? It's a very extreme version of this state and local empowerment. And similarly, in education, like we need to get kids back to school. The federal education department has steadfastly refused to take any position at all or help in any way. Like we're, we're doing a very radical experiment in that, you know, in kind of decentralized response to, you know, very large, you know, small scale response to very large problems. And, right. um, you know, again, going back to relating that to my claim that, well, you need a big company to do a big thing. Sometimes you need a government. Um, you know, we have a lot more evidence now than we did about what happens if, if you don't. You know, that, that's been a, a dominant theory of US thought has been that sort of libertarian streak. Um, we'll see how that goes. Yeah, it's boy, where it's a fascinating time, isn't it? Um, so, any any kind of last concrete um, sort of thought that you would? I mean, we talked a lot about software, but I think there are some of these principles that apply to people that run businesses that are not software. And you mentioned Amazon, kind of bringing this sort of same same kind of model to you know their provision of last mile services or their warehouses, their distribution network. Um, so you know how can how can a business owner think about how to innovate even within the kind of sphere of the restaurant or you know the retail space or the the cannabis shop or the design firm that you know that they run is there is there kind of a, a principle that applies sort of more universally for people like you that are kind of you know thinking about and trying to improve in the kind of on the smaller scale rather than the you know the the Boeings of the world. Yeah, I mean, I can think of two things that that might be relevant down to the the smallest scale. Um, one is that you shouldn't have a scale, right? You know, your the the project management that you do for the innovation should be proportional to the size of the innovation, and the amount of risk you take should be 
inversely proportional. If you're trying to do something really big, you know, you're completely, your restaurant, you're opening a completely new location. How can you minimize the other? Yeah. The other changes, right? So just managing, um, that's going to be a lot different than, you know, hey, let's totally flip the menu, which maybe you should go all in for, right? So there's that, this idea that it's not one size fits all for new things that you do. You manage each scale in a different way. Yeah, I like um, that. And there's, an, there's another thing that Amazon does that fits with your decentralized and modularity idea, which is they, they take any function, you know, the problem in any business, even a small business is you're doing a function, you're doing bookkeeping or whatever, and you're not very good at it because you know what? Your bookkeeper doesn't have to go out and compete with all the other bookkeepers. Um, it doesn't matter if they're crappy, they still have a job. And Amazon solves that problem by saying to each of their functions, you are now a product. You have to sell your services on the open market. If you, my IT function is now going to become Amazon Web Services. Now all of a sudden you have the best cloud services IT department on the planet, right? Your warehousing function, which is absolutely critical, is now we're going to become Amazon Fulfillment Services. Right, 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 sell right. warehousing and fulfillment. You maybe, you know, now they're doing their own delivery, they're probably going to offer to sell that. So it's a trick that you can use to try to open up and say, well, what things am I doing that I could actually sell and make competitive? And I think you can do that down to a pretty small scale and kind of get that mini Jeff Bezos feeling. Yeah, and I think I think you know that's a thing that I think a lot about, and that, and that I help even like even I think teams at big companies sometimes struggle with this. It's like like my and my friend Roger Martin. Um, I'll I'll put in a link to to his some of his work in the show notes um, because he is he is really good um, along with a colleague of his Jennifer Riel um, at sort of asking the question like what is your strategy, right? What do you do and, and what's the space you play in and why are you the best at it? And so I think, you know, even as a restaurant, you can, you can be thinking about that, right? You can be thinking about, you know, here, here's the space we're going to win in. We're going to make amazing food and deliver it to customers in this way. And then your work can go around optimizing that. And it may not be that, you know, marketing is your is your best thing so maybe you should pay somebody else to do your marketing for you or maybe you should you know you should find a partner to help you do that i think there's a way in which um yeah really thinking about how to uh kind of how to parameterize what you do in different ways and figure out what's actually the value you want to deliver and and why are you going to be the best Thai restaurant on your block, even if it's defined in that local way? That's a really good point about just entrepreneurship in general, that you don't win by being good. It's something that a lot of other people do. You just can't because you know what there's other people doing it and, and you're never going to make an impact. You win by being by picking something that you're going to be great at, even if it's you know very niche. And yes. um, you know, that's that's not an original thought by either of us, but it's a very good point about how you win as an entrepreneur that you you find that those edge cases and and really blow them out. Yeah, and it's and I but I think it's something to come back to, and it's something that I have to remember as somebody who is interested in a ton of things personally. It's work that I'm doing to kind of continually refine my message about who I work with and and why I'm great at that and how I 
help facilitate greatness in my clients, whether they're coaching clients or, you know, the, some of the world's people at some of the world's biggest companies. So what do you do to facilitate greatness that I wouldn't do? So it's a great question. Um, that was supposed to be a softball, right? You know, what's I know, really important is... to you personally, right, about this mission? Um, I'm just, I'm flipping it over here, but I think it's an interesting question. Totally. And I think it's part of what's held me back in my business blowing up. And I, I think it's something that I'm, I'm, in fact, I have a call scheduled later today with my coach to talk about exactly this. Like, because I'll tell you who, I'll tell you features of people that I work with. They're often people that are catalyzing change in their organizations. There are people who are curious, who are readers, who are kind of explorers and seekers. Um, and they are people that, like me, have a sensitivity to organizational dynamics. So they don't believe that, you know, they don't believe that the solution is the end. They believe that that's the start. And, um, you know, you've got to match the solution with delivering it to people in a way that is hitting them at the right time where they are malleable, where it's easy. I mean, it's just like what you were talking about with, with continuous integration, right? You've got to demonstrate to people it works in some kind of safe way so that they almost are forced to start using it um, rather than they want to get bought in. Well, I have a theory about that, which is architecture right? That you design a structure like continuous integration. If it works, people will do it. Yep. If you try to start from the culture side, persuading people to do it before they can see that the machine works, that's probably not going to work. But what I just got out of your statement, what's run through the last probably 15 minutes is curiosity. That yes. you can go into an organization where, you know, they've kind of had the curiosity burned out of them. <laughs> and, yeah. and you can make that fun again and bring it in at the right point. And that's going to, that's going to, break the log. That's down. actually, it's funny. I mean, you know, I do these, I'm sure as you do, if you're, if, if you're curious back to that, like I've done, you know, strength assessments and like, what are my, you know, what are my care? Like, what is a driving thing? And my number one thing is curiosity. And so I think that's great. And that's exactly what I do. I help organizations get curious again so they can solve big problems or I help leaders get curious again so they can solve big problems. Um, yeah. I love that. Great. Thanks. I, uh, you know, I don't need that. I'm always curious, but um, like everybody else in the world, I love it when, you know, somebody will listen and engage, you know, on something that I'm thinking about. And, and that's probably a reward that you give to a lot of the people you work with. Yeah, I think that's a good, that's a good way to put it. Um, yeah. I think the other thing that, you know, I, I bring to things is just that I'm kind of scattered. Right. So I'm interested in lots of different things. And so I am, you know, I can go in lots of different contexts and play around there. And I'm never going to be, you'll never ever want me to be the guy that sets up your continuous integration system or tells you how to, you know, build the kind of safety engineering system to, you know, whatever to your framework. But what I will help you do is figure out what's not working about it now and, you know, help you given a structure, make it 10 times better by, by finding small tweaks around the edges. And that's just cause I got, I've got, I mean, that was part of what I loved about writing the book. I got to play and learn about a lot of different spaces 
um, you know, we write about everything from the space program to, um, yeah, to the, the, the Flint, Michigan water crisis to, um, you know, nuclear power. And it's like, these are just such different areas. And yeah, it's just a pleasure to be able to, to, to play in them. And to that point, um, it was really a pleasure to be able to kind of play in your sandbox today. So thanks for, thanks for sharing all your, your thinking. And I'm really glad um, we got together. Thanks. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening. To stay in the loop about new episodes and to be eligible for my periodic book bundle giveaways, sign up for the Breakdown newsletter at chrisclearfield.com slash giveaway. So what's this giveaway? Every few months, I bundle together three or four influential books, often written or recommended by guests from the show, and I give them away to a few lucky listeners. I'll include a signed copy of Meltdown, and because I'm friends with many of my fellow authors, I try to get their books signed as well, so you definitely don't want to miss out on that. Go to chrisclearfield.com giveaway to get on the list. Finally, join your fellow listeners. Subscribe to the show and share it with your friends. And if you love the show, give us a five-star rating in your favorite podcast app. Even one extra review helps us get an edge on the algorithm so more people can find us. And before we roll the credits, remember, if you're a business owner ready to transform your business and your life, find out more about my approach to coaching and sign up for a free intro session at chrisclearfield.com slash make the leap. That's all one word, make the leap. The Breakdown with Chris Clearfield is a team effort. The inimitable Rain Avant is our assistant producer and makes everything run smoothly. Gabe Turner and Claire Skinner help make the amazing content here and on my newsletter, available at chrisclearfield.com slash the breakdown. Laura Stack is our editor, and our theme was composed by the creative team at Spiky Blimp. Thanks so much for listening, and be well until our next breakdown.